0: Perfect. All right, ready to start? Good morning, everyone. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 17 of Revelation, which is, again, depending upon how one reckons it, really the conclusion, the extended conclusion of the book of Revelation. And we have been looking at the great prostitute and the beast with paying particular attention to these themes of contrast uh, that, that John is bringing to our attention in not-so-subtle ways. If you And we're going to see more of this, of course. But what you, what you see so far is, is the true trinity and the anti-trinity, the dragon and the two beasts. Um, this third beast, as we mentioned, morph, morphs into the false prophet, uh, morphs into the great prostitute. We'll talk about that. Um, but you have this trinity and this anti-trinity. You have these themes of baptism, where the name of the Father and the Son, this is the language of Revelation, are written upon the foreheads of the saints, and anti-baptism, the mark of the beast, uh, put upon the forehead and, and the hands of the saints, or the, the unbelievers, excuse me, the unbelievers. And then you have, then you have this, this play and its dynamic with the anti-sacrament, the anti-cup, And you've got this play in two different ways. In the first place, in the backdrop, you have the the cup of Christ, which is the cup of forgiveness, his his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, the New Testament, as Jesus himself says. And then in contrast to this, going two different directions, you've got the cup of God's wrath being poured out, not the cup of God's forgiveness, but the cup of God's wrath. And then on the other hand, you've got the, the cup of the prostitute, filled with her sexual immorality. And we've talked about the close connection in biblical literature, um, and even in many respects, just uh, organically, uh, the close connection between um, sexual immorality, adultery, and and idolatry. So, okay, those are some of the themes. We've, we've got an anti-trinity, we've got anti-baptism, we've got anti-sacrament. We've also got anti-church in some respects because the woman presented to us back in Revelation 12 with the, the crown of stars and the moon under her feet, um, she, is, she is Mary and the church. Here we have the great prostitute. And so contrasting this, this great, uh, beautiful woman we Christians are her offspring. You have the great prostitute riding upon the beast. All right. Well, let's uh, with with those thoughts in mind. Let's get into let's get into chapter seventeen. What we're going to see in in chapter seventeen, uh, particularly as it comes to a close, is one of the one of the challenges to Revelation, especially for those of us who are Americans in the twenty first century who have sort of had this drummed into our head by Christians all around us of every kind, that Revelation is all talking about you know, some future that we're all going to be able to decide. and That's one of the things that I've, I've tried to steer us clear of, is that way of reading. Revelation is, is primarily a first-century document written, written to be understood by first-century people and, and fulfilled shortly therein. And we can, we can take the, the theological lenses or, you know, through which we can see or tools and, and we can use these things to interpret uh, our own times and make comparisons. And uh, so, so that's certainly valid. But it's a different thing. It's a different thing than saying these particular verses are fulfilled in this particular way in our time. You know? I mean, even, even today you kind of hear this like, Well, don't get the vaccine because it's going to have a microchip, and the microchip is surely the sign of the beast. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the kind of thing that we want to avoid. um, That's yeah. That's the kind of thing we want to avoid. I think the fear is you look stupid because, I mean, what if it was, right? (laughs) And it's like, gosh, it was so obvious and we all missed it. But we can't let, I think we can't let that fear um, take us away from our exegetical task. And our exegetical task is looking at what it meant in the first century when it was written. Okay. And then we can take those principles, just like any other book of the Bible, we can take those principles and apply them. I mean, that's, that's most of what preparing a sermon is about, is you go, okay, what's, what's actually going on there in, in the first century? You know, what's, what's actually happening here? What are the principles and dynamics that then apply to people today? I mean, that's really the homiletical task. The same thing is true with Revelation, so there's ways that we can apply apply revelation. We've done a fair amount of that. There's ways that we can apply revelation to our own circumstances and it's very, very helpful, very, very fruitful. But one thing we, we do want to avoid is, is being too specific, too particular um, because that then betrays the exegetical purpose. And um, we're going to see that. We're going to see that in, in chapter 17 where it's impossible to think that John is writing about anything other than 1st century Rome. Okay. So, let's, uh, without further ado then, let's, let's jump in. Now, we, we left off at verse 6, but for the sake of granting some continuity, let's just pick back up at verse 1 and read quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And you recall we made the, the contrast with uh, the throne of the one who is upon the glassy sea. And you can see then, that, then this sort of anti-type picture going on. Okay. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And so here you have kind of the anti-sacrament we've been talking about. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now full of blasphemous names, you know, that that would be that would be like the pantheon of idolatry, you know, full of idols would be another way of of like making that concrete. And it had seven heads and ten horns. We recognize this designation from earlier in Rome as being the beast from the sea. Um, And and that's uh, that's chapter 13, um, political tyranny. And as we're going to discover here, what what this really is concretely in chapter 17 is Rome. Okay, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Uh, We can note the the colors here, the, the scarlet beast and the purple and scarlet woman. And adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Again, contrast that with the church, pictured as that Revelation 12 woman. If she has a cup in her hand, what is the cup of the church? the cup the Lord has given her, the cup of forgiveness, life, and salvation, the cup by by which we are healed of our sins. And and here is the antithesis to that. Um, And I think as it was true in the first century, it's certainly true today. When you you see the world through these lenses, you can see how, um, particularly in our country right now, uh, sexual immorality is at such the heart of the destruction of the family and the hatred of Christianity and um, the war against God's people. All right, verse 5, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, of course, as we mentioned, Babylon is the ancient enemy of Israel. They destroy the temple. Um, they, They carry off the remainder of Israel into bondage. So, Babylon is, in many respects, the great enemy. If you were to, uh, if you were to kind of split, split the—it's a little artificial—but split the Old Testament in two, the first great enemy would be Egypt, and the second great enemy would be Babylon. So Babylon shows up here, and remember, we've been playing with these themes of plague and Egypt, and now we're we're looking at themes of uh, Babylon. All right. Well, on her forehead which again is kind of an anti baptismal -baptismal imagery Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Okay, not a good picture here when I saw her I marveled greatly But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. Okay, time out there. Where where have you seen that language, that construction? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's remission of the Trinity. But remember, um, all the way back in chapter 1, the Father is described in in these terms. The one who was, who is, and who is to come, and so here you have the the again a sort of theme and reflection of of the anti father, the anti God here. So. Um, Yeah, the beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise. Now, here's the difference: from the bottomless pit, and go to destruction. So we've seen the bottomless pit before. Uh, We we saw the um, the one who comes up out of the bottomless pit, and um, now in this respect, you know, it's not. The imagery has shifted, and again, strictly speaking, this isn't the same one as the. As the uh, dragon or the destroyer, the one who was associated with the pit before, strictly speaking, this is the beast, and he comes out of the bottomless pit in order to go to destruction in order to go to destruction, which is which is an interesting glimpse into the idea of the bottomless pit as sort of the intermediate state, what we sometimes call hell. And to go to destruction being the final state, um, everlasting darkness, lake of fire, in the imagery of revelation. Anyway, it's a a fascinating verse with all of these uh, different data points in mind. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. It's just fascinating, fascinating construction. The study now says the characterization of the beast, which appears twice within this context, is a perversion upon the title applied to God the Father. See note chapter 1, verse 4. The beast is an imposter who passes himself off as the one true God. You know, and that's interesting because if the beast is political, is sort of political power, political tyranny, um, used in opposition of Christ and his church, that that makes a lot of sense, understood foundationally as uh, the the anti father, because the you have the the patriarchy, the rule um, of of man over himself, being the anti father to the true father, which is uh, God. You can you can glimpse this, albeit with a different intent, but you can glimpse this kind of thing even in Genesis, where. Uh, we are made in, in God's image, and then by Genesis 5, after the fallen to sin, we are now made in Adam's image. And so there's a sense in which fallen man has man as his own father. The collective force of that is the government uh, used in opposition to God, the true father. So, yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of sort of complex themes and Revelation isn't going to spell any of that out for us with precision, but it is going to invite us to sort of meditate and, and think on uh, these, these facets of the Scriptures and of reality. All right, we see here that um, some gospel, some gospel thrown in here, um, that, that we who believe in Christ, our names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Because it is the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world that marvel to see the beast. Apparently those of us who do have our names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world don't really marvel. Verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Okay, now, see, now it becomes very concrete and very clear in a first century sense. The study note on 17.9 points it out. This reinforces the identification of this great prostitute with Rome since the city famously sits on seven hills. So the city sitting on the mountains is the prostitute sitting on the beast. See how that works? So again, just once more, not to belabor the point, but this is this is why, you, in our application of Romans to our or Romans Revelation to our own time, you can't ever get like that concrete or that specific. Otherwise, you just, you run into a train wreck in passages like like these. I mean, unless you're somehow going to assert that um, that these are all going to be fulfilled in Rome in some ultimate sense. About the closest we get to that is the papacy. <laughs> All right, well, um, verse 10. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So in simplest terms, what is this talking about? This is talking about the upcoming persecution of the church and the powers of Rome wielded against Christians and the promise that they will do their worst, and all of this is in God's control, all of this is in his hands, and in the end, Christ and his Christians will triumph. Rome will fall. And, of course, that's all, that's all fulfilled. That's all fulfilled. Um, so that is, that is in you know, complete and total simplicity, what this means. Now, you can dig into, into the specifics and try to figure out what the specific reference are that... Uh, that John and his first century audience are are going to understand here. And, you know, that's a difficult and convoluted task. I think the study notes, I'll read a little to you from Brighton, but I think the study notes do a fair job. They do a fair job. If you look at the study note on verse 10, seven kings, five of whom, so seven kings, five of whom have fallen, likely refers to a series of first century Roman emperors Though we cannot ascertain their identities with precision. Okay, and then as you look at verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. What on earth is meant there? Again, the study note is simple as possible. Caesar, whose policies were particularly hostile to the church. Many scholars see here a reference to. Uh, the Nero Redivivus myth. Uh, Nero was a terrible persecutor of the church, and um, even after his death, there was this myth and idea that he was going to return and wreak havoc on all his enemies once more. And this is mentioned in the Sibylline Oracle number four. And the study note continues, this was a popular belief that the reviled and dreaded emperor Nero would rise from the dead and lead a horde of foreign troops from the east in an attack to Rome or an attack on Rome. John may adapt this imagery much as the psalmist at times adapt the imagery of Canaanite myths without regarding them as true. The imagery of John's visions should not be imposed over contemporary nations and events as though the Nero Redidivus myth would be literally fulfilled or describe a modern Babylonian ruler. And I think that that's pretty well said. I mean, that really succinctly was trying to You know, it's getting at the point I was trying to make a moment ago. It's a a mistake to apply these things concretely, um, specifically, to anything in in modern history. Okay, well, let me me touch on um, a word from Brighton here in regard to these things. Yeah, so this is what Brighton has to say. The beast's color is mentioned for the first time in chapter 17, verse 3, as scarlet. Scarlet suggests the ostentatious magnificence of the Roman Empire, since in John's day, the beast was represented by Rome. Most likely, the beast has this color because it is one of the colors of the harlot, and she has conferred it on the beast to indicate that she dominates it and that it acts on her behalf and for the purpose of magnifying her splendor. As mentioned in the commentary on chapter 17, verse 1, this is the political beast. The fact that here the woman rides the beast suggests that, at the moment, the beast serves the purposes of the harlot. At other times, the relationship is reversed and the harlot serves the beast. This happens when the harlot is in the guise of the beast from the earth with the number 666, back in chapter 13, this dynamic, or in the guise of the false prophet. And you can look at uh, chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20. And she serves the beast with the seven heads and ten horns. At still other times, these two minions of the dragon, who together with him make up the unholy trinity, seem to work as equals in tandem and finally at times they squabble and fight among themselves as if the dragon is not always able to keep them in line working only for him and not for themselves this becomes evident when near the end and possibly at other times as well the beast turns upon the harlot to destroy her now this is referring we're going to see this coming up here in just a few verses most likely as part of God's judgment on her all right So first first century, what does this mean? The first century uh, reality of the political power and the the religious powers in Rome, at times working in unison, at times being against one another, um, that is really the first century reference involved. What can we extrapolate and take from that? again, lenses with which to see the various power structures and this sort of threefold way of looking at the world, that you have have the beast, or excuse me, the dragon, Satan as the enemy of the church, and he uses political power to persecute the church, and he uses religious power to persecute the church. And, in Rome, these dynamics shifted back and forth, and every time and place they shift back and forth. Um, at times, the papacy, uh, which would be false religion, controlled the state, and controlled the state in such a way that it caused the state to execute its desires. I mean, you flip that today, and what is, what is the papacy in Rome today politically? I mean, Nothing. As long as it'll toe the line, it'll get airtime. Uh, as long as it'll say what the state is saying, it'll get airtime. But if not, it's scoffed and laughed at and ridiculed and might even potentially be attacked if it tried to stand its ground. And so you see, you see John taking these, taking these basic fundamental principles of the fallen world, the devil, political tyranny, and religious tyranny, and you can see how John's saying, look, this, this is how these things look in the first century. From that, we can extrapolate how they look. Uh, in our own in our own time, um, you can see, you know, you can see these connections. In our own time, um, when realizing that uh, that what we often call progressivism is really probably better understood as a religion, and as a religion that's perfectly in service to that political tyranny which wants to attack the church in the modern day age. Um, I haven't. I should have taken a picture. Oh, maybe I did take a picture, but I should have brought it in. Um, no doubt. No doubt. You you have all seen some of the the propaganda. That's almost like it's almost like new creeds um, about regarding love and tolerance and all of this stuff. And it's um, it's completely it's completely religious uh, and and carries with it this idea of uh, there's heresy. There's heresy. It's heretical to say, for example, that uh, homosexuals shouldn't get married. It's a, it's a heresy, right? It, it's not illegal, but it is a heresy. So what you can see using these lenses in our day and age is how, is how a religion is being formed around this idea of progressive utopia. We no longer need God. We have ourselves and our technology. And um, part, of, part of what that's allowing us to do is to transcend these old broken norms and morals uh, which Christianity is so highly associated with. You know, Esoteric and bygone things like the family, like man and woman, uh, like children that don't belong to the state. We need to get rid of all of this and progress as a society to where basically, and as I've articulated before the, the whole system is built like this and is increasingly built like this where everyone is simply sleeping with everyone and is in contr- is in thoroughly controlled by the government right that's that's sort of the vision that's sort of the ideals exchange your sexual freedom and do whatever you want to do there in order to be uh, thoroughly controlled by this by this system um, then Christianity stands as the great enemy to that of course and as uh, guilty first and foremost of heresy all right. Well, so we're just pontificating on the nature of these two beasts, their interaction, or the nature of the beast and the prostitute, their interaction in our culture, in our time and place. Um, any uh, any thoughts or questions you have um, before we progress on, and you'll actually see these two attack each other. Yes, there's a hand. I'm uh, still struck by the thing that you you emphasized the the business about the beast that was and is not and will be. So here's this creature that has a past and it has a future, but it has no present. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I'm wondering if there's something about that, that that God, for him, everything is present, and here's the beast, nothing is present. Mm. Is there a... Is uh, something going on there or, is there, or am I reading too much into it? It sure may be. I, 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 if there is, I just don't know what it is. In um, and, and one respect, it just simply reads as kind of a stab, right? Um, just, just one way in which he's linguistically marking out uh, that there's a difference, you know, and a, a difference of, of substance, the difference between God and this collective creature, But, yeah, there may be more to it than that. I'd be willing to entertain that. You just have to come up with it. Tell me what it is. (laughs) All right, any other thoughts? So, remarkably, and this is so true, you see, see, evil is so, by nature, so self-centered that it, it can't hardly even work together for very long before it attacks itself. And so that's what we're going to see here coming up uh, as chapter 17 draws to an end. All right, well, not to gloss over the most important parts. At verse 14, just to read it once more and re-emphasize it, they, the beast and this harlot, in the imagery of chapter 17, will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Which, again, is kind of a humorous image. I mean, it is is supposed to be a kind of humorous image. The lamb is not what you would expect to do any conquering. So there's the paradox there that his strength is made perfect in weakness, and God is going to defeat these great, almighty, all-powerful enemies with a lamb, with weakness, with Christ. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So some beautiful gospel descriptors of us as saints. Uh, Again, not only have our names been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, but in time we are called and chosen and faithful. And that, by the way, is the only way to know that your name is written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You You can't fly up into heaven and see it. You can't go visit the heavenly museum. Flip through the. <laughs> well, eventually, I suppose we'll all get there, yeah. There was a, uh, go, they visit oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll leave those, uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. All the people who go to heaven or claim to have gone to heaven. Oh, my. Yeah, later to recant. Later to recant. I can't remember the. Remember that kid who was really famous? Yeah. As an adult, he recanted and said he, uh, he was told by his parents to make the whole thing up. He some yeah. money. Well, I mean, yeah, as as if we needed to know that. I mean, all you have to do is read the account of these, I've been to heaven and back, and you find out that the heaven is nothing like the biblical heaven and the Jesus is nothing like the biblical Jesus. And, oh, yeah. (laughs) The Eastern Orthodox may be most right on that. That the white ball of light that everybody sees upon death is uh, Satan. Masquerading as an angel of light ready to sweep everyone away who thinks that the warm and fuzzies he's offering them is, in fact, heaven. Oh, that's, pretty, that's a pretty salty take, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Look for Jesus. <laughs> look for the one whose, whose hands are, have the nail marks for you and whose side has the spear for you. Look for, look for Jesus. Don't accept any substitute. Yeah. Anyway, okay, well, sorry for that little digression. Um, yeah, they, so they're going to make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb's going to win. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Again, first century, what is this saying? Rome controls and owns and influences everything. I mean, that's all that's really saying. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast... "'will hate the prostitute. "'They will make her desolate and naked "'and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. "'For God has put it into their hearts "'to carry out this purpose by being of one mind "'and handing over their royal power to the beast "'until the words of God are fulfilled. "'And the woman that you saw is the great city "'that has dominion over the kings of the earth.'" So again, here you can see like all the kings of the earth um, partaking of her cup. That's all the kings of the earth partaking of the idolatry of Rome and in political-slash-religious subservience. Um, and this is, what, this is what Brighton was referring to when he wrote that this, finally at times they squabble and fight among themselves as if the dragon is not always able to keep them in line, working only for him and not for themselves. This becomes evident when near the end, possibly at other times as well, the beast turns upon the harlot to destroy her, most likely as a part of God's judgment on her. And I think, I I mean, I don't know, I don't think we ought to read too much into this. I I think that a fair generalistic kind of statement would simply be raw power is embodied in government. And government will use religion when it suits it. When it doesn't suit it, it will attack religion. And even if that religion is, in and of itself, contrary to uh, to Christ. And so we ought not be surprised when we see that, when we see infighting between even two things that are enemies of Christ fighting one another. um, We ought not be surprised that was going on in the first century, it continues to this day. Pastor, can this be another uh, anti-type of sorts where we see the disunity of the anti-trinity uh, compared to the unity of the true trinity? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely unity—I mean, there's a distinction of persons, but the unity of persons is so great that they're never in contradiction with one another. Yeah, and are and they're selfless. You know, I mean, that's the beautiful thing to really to really reflect on on the nature of God. Is his his inherent selflessness? It's why it's why a lot of reformed theology talking about the glory of God and that God's got to kill you know send all these people to hell for His glory and this kind of thing, just I mean, not only is it kind of bereft of a biblical foundation, but it, um, it really paints a picture of God that's quite contrary to how the rest of the scriptures paint him, which is very often not interested in his glory at all, setting aside his glory, um, or having, in the way of John's gospel, his glory being his humiliation for his children in order to save them, right? Just a different take on glory, a redefinition of glory. Um in contrast to that, you have evil as being inherently self serving. The dragon cares only about the the two beasts insofar as they serve him, and the two beasts care only for themselves, and if one gets in the way of the other, they attack, uh, and it doesn 't matter so so what you see is raw power and raw selfishness. In contrast to that, as you're doing, you see on the part of God and the Holy Trinity, you see selflessness and strength made perfect in weakness. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of mileage. There's a, I, I'm kind of going over this fast because I don't want to get bogged down in the technical details in the first century, you know, speculations of what these references are in the first century, but there is a, there is a lot of room to just kind of pause and take this in and think over the dynamics. So thank you for that suggestions. It's right on. Let me... Uh, yeah, here. This is Brighton on the Beast attacking, destroying the harlot. The um, Revelation 17, 15-18 serves as a brief and partial description of her judgment. This serves to introduce a lengthy and detailed account in chapter 18 of her overthrow and the eternal ruin for which she is destined in hell. But these final verses of chapter 17 tell how the beast with the ten horns turns on the woman under God's sovereign motivating power to begin her downfall. "...the political and ruling powers of the earth, which had been cohorts with the harlot in her immoral and demon-like spiritual reign over the earth, now become agents of God, which initiate her final ruin. God has in store for the harlot Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, a carefully laid out plan to tear her apart as he brings her to total destruction in his anger and judgment." These verses reveal the beginning of this plan. It is a telltale sign of her coming final judgment when the beast and the ten horns begin to hate the harlot and turn on her. It is interesting that the beast turns to hate the woman with its ten horns and not its seven heads. Historically, Rome was finally brought down not so much by her own emperors, but rather by the kings and ruling powers of her client states, and from neighboring states with whom she flirted, but whom she could never completely bring under her sway. The disintegration of the harlot's false spiritual and Christ-like power begins not so much because of the political and ruling powers which legitimized her authority under the pretense of divine sanction, the seven heads or the seven kings, but rather because of those ruling powers which seize and sanction their authority to rule by brute and naked force, the ten horns or the ten kings. All right, so that, I mean, again, that, what is Brighton doing? Showing us what's going on in the first century and what this text means in its original context. Okay, good to move on. Let's uh, let's pick up at chapter eighteen, verse one. Then, where we left off. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Um, Brighton spent some time explaining that this this might be the same angel as the angel that has one foot in the the sea and one foot on the land, and he's glorious with clouds and uh, has the rainbow sphere over his head. Uh, Brighton, anyway, spends a lot of time on that. And he called out with a mighty voice, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. "'She has become a dwelling place for demons, "'a haunt for every unclean spirit, "'a haunt for every unclean bird.'" A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. I mean, so if you think of Rome as the power on earth, Trying to subdue all earth under it, and trying to be the, the king or queen of all earth, queen in Rome, you know, Rome as the queen of the whole earth, and then pouring out the the idolatry of Rome. And the, the sort of, um, the tolerance of Roman uh, religion. You know, that was the one reason why Christians were persecuted, was the main reason why Christians were persecuted and even called atheists, is because of their insistence upon exclusivity. There was no problem in the Roman view and mindset of adding Christ. Hey, that's one more God to worship. Worship him if you want. Uh, but the fact that, that Christians were saying, no, Christ and Christ alone and no other gods may be worshiped, that was seen as an affront, as an assault on Roman power and on the Roman. System, So Christians were described as being uncivilized, unwilling to be a civilian of Rome, being atheistic because they had this one God who died on the cross rather than all the gods, uh, etc. Okay? So again, I think, I think as, you, as you read this and you have the first century in your mind, this obviously becomes just very clear. This is talking about Rome setting itself up as God on earth and God taking out Rome and saying, no, Christ is God on earth. We can, we can use these theological lenses to talk about our own time and to think theologically and see theologically. That's fine. Uh, but these have, their, these have their, exegetically speaking, their, their referent in the first century. Okay, you see the connection between sexual immorality and, um, which again is idolatry, and also then wealth wealth. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So broadly speaking, you know, sexual immorality and wealth really showing the, the end stage evil of Rome and the end stage evil of any given empire or country or political power, uh, which of course is a little bit haunting, isn't it? Because, I mean, what is America if it's not wealthy and sexually immoral? Yeah. All right, so the angel, the angel um, announces that she's done, that she's fallen. This is great news, great news to the saints of God, because this is the anti-woman. This is the, the beast. This is the devil, the trinity of evil. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, verse 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now what does this mean, that every Christian was then commanded by God to depart from the Roman Empire? No. I mean, What, is, what does come out of her mean? It's not geographical. It's spiritual. And that, I think that that, you know, behooves us especially because it's like, yeah, as America gets worse, sometimes we do have the impulse to leave. And there's nothing wrong with leaving. I mean, you can think of uh, the way our country was founded was people fleeing uh, religious persecution and coming over here. And the freedom that they established here was first and foremost a freedom of religion. Isn't that the First Amendment? Even before, I think it even comes before speech in the First Amendment. And somehow, someway, fairly early on, that gets changed from religious freedom to financial freedom. <laughs> and then it goes from financial freedom and this, this pursuit of mammon rather than the Lord uh, into a sexual immorality. And, and, so then, and that's where we're at now. So you have this wealth and sexual immorality, the same thing that befell Rome. Um, so would it be wrong for us to decide, hey, let's all... Uh, Let's, let's all get on a ship and head over to Africa and make a new start? No, oh, that's fine. I mean, it's within, that's within Christian bounds to do that whenever and wherever you please. Um, that, that's allowed. But it is not a command of this angel that Christians do that. To come out of her means to make a distinction. And increasingly for us, that, what that means is just realizing that we're not, we don't fit into the world and we should stop trying. I mean, that in and of itself would be Revolutionary. In the church, if every if every American Christian just said, "We're going to stop trying to fit in," <laughs> and could you? Well, first, first of all, whole churches would collapse because they're entirely based upon that, right? They're entirely based upon, "Hey, you can be a good American and a good Christian." Let me show you how. Uh, but increasingly, that's just not the case. And we're all grappling with that and wrestling with that. But I think that that's the first, for us, concretely, I mean, all these, all these centuries later in an entirely different place, that would be the application of this principle. It's not an angelic command to leave, but it is an angelic command to spiritually separate ourselves and, and not share in her sins, lest we share in her plagues. All right, verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, And God has remembered her iniquities. Those are terrifying words. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Here is a kind of antithesis to uh, play on that theme um, in Isaiah. She has received double. And there the double is grace. Here the double is punishment repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen and am no widow, and mourning I shall never see." For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Again, just very swiftly, that's the point death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. All right, so there there again, you see the nature of of her idolatry. I sit as queen. And uh, so Rome that persecuted the Christians. is eventually destroyed and of course we look back and see that this came to pass this was fulfilled verse 9 and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say alas alas you great city you mighty city Babylon for in a single hour your judgment has come. So many bought into the hope in one way, shape, or form that Rome was going to usher in a first century version. I mean, really, frankly, earlier than that. But a version of utopia on earth. You know, of wealth and prosperity for all. And to see, it, to see it fall, to see it struck down, causes them to weep and wail. And again, we, as we were talking about our, you know, in our time and this idea of progressivism, everything's always getting better and better. Everything's always evolving to more and more. Um, why that's so attractive to people, of course, is they can ignore their sin. <laughs> they can ignore their need for a savior. Everything's getting better. I'm getting better. You're getting better. We can all conspire toward uh, just becoming wealthier and more sexually free. And to have, to have that be destroyed and destroyed quickly would be deeply grievous to many, many millions of people. So there would be a parallel in our own time. All right, verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys her cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, Silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and 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 slaves, that is, human souls. Yeah. So they're quite the indictment against Rome. Quite the indictment. I don't if we wanted to modernize this. I mean, we might say our, you know, what do we say? Ferraris, iPhones. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the luxuries that people base their lives on and, um, instead of God. It's the treasures of the earth versus the treasures in heaven that Jesus warns about and warns us not to keep our treasures on earth, not to have these things as our treasures because, uh, I mean, as he says, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Societies collapse and our bank accounts, which these days are all digital, suddenly become zero. <laughs> you know. So, so again, our, Lord, um, our Lord's instructions ring through even these words, not to have uh, our hope set in these things. They can be taken away in the blink of an eye. All right, verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. Again, earthly wealth, earthly satisfaction. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters. Okay, well, what are we doing here? This is the liturgy of earth. This is the liturgy of earth. So we've contrasted that with the liturgy of heaven, ringing throughout all of Revelation, glorifying the lamb and his salvation and those things that are heavenly and eternal. And here, here uh, the queen of the earth, Rome, is thrown down and you have the dirge and the liturgy of all the people on earth, mourning and lamenting, one, one group after another. We've had the kings and the merchants, and now in verse 17, the shipmasters and seafaring men. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. And then interesting, interesting, because it seems to be these same sailors who speak these next (laughs) words. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Very interesting. Very interesting. So it becomes clear and evident uh, that it is it is the dragon and this and this city over and against God and His saints. And then this is um, you know this is interesting. It's true. There is rejoicing in heaven over the downfall of evil. All right, well, let's finish. 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. Now again, what is Babylon referring to? First century Rome. And the sound of the harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. All right. Thus far, the liturgy of mourning of those who belong to the earth when earthly powers are thrown down. And then what we are going to see, and you can already see in chapter 19, is the response in the liturgy of heaven, which is rejoicing. Because as unpopular as it may be, and it certainly hasn't been popular or PC uh, in the church to say this for the past few hundred years, I mean, this really is about good and evil, and good wins and evil loses, and if, if you don't like that, then you're not really seeing right, and if, if somehow the gospel has skewed you to where you see all people as evil and all people as good and has and kind of messed you up and confused you in this respect, well, let Revelation sort that for you. <laughs> Let revelation remind you of just this real simplistic sanity of there's good and evil and there's a day to repent and come to salvation and there's a day when that door is closed and when you've rejected the Lord, you get what you get and that's as good as those who, ex- who receive the Lord and they get what they get. They're both equally good. They're both equal sides of the one coin. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.